Hi, everyone. Welcome to January 29th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get to our first topic. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock announced an update on Denver's coronavirus relief strategy this week. Hancock stated that the city will open and an emergency operations center and has asked the Biden administration for direct delivery of vaccines without going through the state. Meanwhile, Governor Polis received some pushback against claims he made on CNN about COVID testing for teachers in Colorado. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, we're right before probably a big announcement from Governor Polis. We thought that he would have the decency to let us know beforehand when we tape at noon. Sadly, we, we don't know yet. So there might be more news about this. But from what we've heard from Mayor Hancock, what do you think about what's been announced and the new program that will be eligible for 500 businesses? Well, the five-star certification program, which starts on February 2nd in Denver, 500 businesses is a drop in the bucket. I mean, so this is actually a state program which allows businesses that are certified, once the county is, to operate at one level of fewer restrictions. So for restaurants, it means you could go to 50% instead of 25% capacity later hours. It's a great program in counties where the numbers are down, and it's been enacted in a few already. So we'll see how it happens. But Summit County got a lot of people okayed for the program quickly. Will Denver do as well? We'll see. It takes a while. You know, basically, we've had an emergency center in Denver back when the COVID first hit. All PR people are basically working on an emergency basis because numbers change all the time. Rules change all the time. We see that with the vaccinations. I don't see... D.C. actually agreeing to suddenly deal with mayors when you've got 50 states you're trying to get vac- vaccines to when they've found so many different problems just with the amount, the lack of uh, a real system set up. So we will probably see the numbers and the way things are done changing almost daily. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. There's uh, Penny talked about the, the vaccine distribution, and it's bringing up a lot of questions about local control because you have mayors who know their city better than maybe a state official would, but does that uh, exacerbate the problem for the federal government? Is there a model that uh, can help us through this vaccine distribution and still maximize the experts who know the situation best? Well, exactly. It, it, as you say, usually the, the, the most efficient things are, are done at the local level because the local people know the local conditions best. On the other hand, what is the demonstrated managerial competence of the Denver city government? What if they manage vaccine distribution as well as they manage airport construction? <laughs> Governor Polis, uh, in his CNN interview, I thought demonstrated a lot of competence. And as he said, most Colorado schools have been open during this academic year, and he supports that. And as he points out, the data show that the risks are, are uh, for schools are, are quite low in general. And just today there was a story in the Denver Post about what a tremendous drop in learning has been inflicted on most of the children in the Denver public schools uh, by their uh, quite mediocre uh, online alternatives. In, in terms of testing, the biggest problem is the Federal Food and Drug Administration. Under both Trump and Biden, the FDA says you can't buy an at-home test without a prescription. That's like saying you can't take your temperature without a prescription. When HIV was a big problem, the FDA restricted home tests. Uh, These days, they're concentrating on restricting genetic testing. If they got their, their foot off the throat of the American consumer, people could be a lot healthier. 
Eric Sunderman joins us remotely, a columnist with the Denver Gazette and Colorado Politics. Eric, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, you know, Polis got uh, fairly good reviews handling the crisis in 2020, but many more questions have come up in 21. How do you think it's going for him and how the state is handling the crisis so far? Well, I think it's mainly a function, Dominic, of people just being growing, growingly impatient. Uh, we heard th that these vaccines were approved back in the November and December time period. And I think so many people locally, nationally, just sort of said, oh, my God, we're there or we're very close. Well, as we've discussed, that was just the start of uh, getting the science down, getting the medicine and the biology down was just the start of this. And this has turned into an immense logistical challenge facing this country, obviously facing the state. I'm not sure it's healthy to have a competitive environment between Denver and the state. I think we all have to be in this uh, same boat together, but there is a competitive nature. I mean, if, if vaccines are limited, what goes into one person's arm does not go into somebody else's arm. So whether it's jurisdictions fighting with each other or even, you know, growing jealousy among individuals, it's probably something we're going to live with for some time. Lastly, just with respect to Governor Polis, it's worth, worth noting that one of his main advisors and staff people with regard to COVID has now been picked up in a senior capacity by the Biden administration. Her name is Casey Wolf and best wishes to her, but it probably speaks to uh, some degree of respect, at least among the Biden crowd for how Colorado has handled this. Gray Moore joins us also remotely, editor-in-chief at Deke Digital. Awesome name for all the hockey fans out there. Uh, Greg, how do you think the state is doing in the various ways the questions are coming up, coming up about distribution? Because there's a lot of different communities that are getting questions, whether it be teachers, the homeless, folks in prison, uh, folks who are 70-plus, 65-plus, communities of color. There's a whole lot of questions going on. Are we getting the right answers? Uh, no, we're not. And there's a lot of confusion. And, and, and most of that really stems from the disarray uh, in the waning uh, days of, of the Trump administration. You know, if the feds had sort of handled the planning a lot better, I think we'd be in uh, much further along. But there are some real uh, uh, questions about uh, the fairness of the distribution model where, you know, communities of color are underrepresented when it comes to the vaccinations. And if I were the mayor, I would certainly want to get uh, my arms around that situation. As David was saying, you know, the, the local communities generally have a, a, a better idea of where that vaccine needs to go. They have a better relationship on the local level with various communities. They have more trust. And if you want to get those vaccines in the arms uh, in a fair way, uh, I think you really need to use the, um, the local government mechanisms that already have ex established channels of trust and communication uh, to, to get that to get that done. Um, I, secondly, I, I think the state and local governments are under enormous pressure to get their economies going. And, um, you know, uh, from 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 businesses, from parents who want their kids in school, uh, enormous pressure. And I, I think, I, you know, for me, I want to make sure that they're doing it carefully. I thought that um, Polis was a little uh, over his skis when he said that teachers were being tested, you know, twice a week. It was probably a miscommunication, but it shows you the pressure that these guys are under to sort of get things operational again for lots of um, reasons, but, but mostly for tax receipts. I mean, if they don't want to have to start cutting services in five or six or seven or eight months, 
they better get this economy moving and, and there's a, a huge amount of pressure to get that done. Let's get to our next topic. Approximately 4,600 Republicans in Colorado quit the Republican Party between January 6th and January 12th, the spike occurring immediately after the Capitol Hill riot. Around 4,400 of those switched to unaffiliated status and 200 switched to the Democratic Party. The remainder was split between conservative third parties. Uh, David, there's a lot of former Republicans in uh, the unaffiliated status in Colorado, so that's not a huge surprise. But did the numbers uh, reacting in Colorado surprise you? seemed about w within an expectable range. I mean, what, what some people who left the Republican Party recently or, or since 2016 still believe is what Republicans said <clears throat> during the Clinton years. One, character counts. And two, a self-governing republic will self-destruct if it chooses leaders of low moral caliber. That's why Donald Trump won exactly zero delegates at the 2016 Colorado Republican Convention. Yet when Trump became president, he did advance lots of standard Republican issues like reduce taxes, improve national defense, and educational freedom. Plenty of Republicans always realized that Trump was a lout and a blowhard, and they also saw that his words were often sound and fury, signifying nothing. But after Election Day, his words attempted to steal an election, and when the Capitol was invaded, his silence showed his complicity and at least uh, his tacit support uh, for the attack. So some people don't want to belong to a party that still supports a guy like that. Before the election, Trump expanded the Republican base among working people of all races. After the election, he's been a one-man wrecking crew on the party. Eric, we've seen the Colorado GOP at odds at the very local level, the Colorado legislature, between the likes of a Kevin Priola and a Patrick Neville. Uh, right now, with the Kevin Priola, at least crowd, or who he represents, uh, getting the upper hand in that battle, do you think this symbolizes that there's going to be further soul-searching or conflicts within the Colorado Republican Party? Well, there has to be. There better be, and it better be soon, and the soul-searching better be deep. The numbers you cited in your question, Dominic, I think are only the tip of the iceberg. Those are people who logged on to actually change their party affiliation. I think the bigger number is people who just sort of tuned out, and they may still, they may have not have gone to the effort of changing their registration, but they sure changed their attitude. Uh, I thought a lot of what David just said was very wise. What I disagree with is, I don't remember the exact words, but to the effect that a lot of Republicans are seen through Donald Trump. As I look at this, the moderates, the Kevin Piolas of the world, the Cole Wiss of the world in Colorado are the exception, not the rule. And I mean, this remains very much Donald Trump's party. In Colorado, it's Lauren Boebert's party until somebody shakes it loose. I have a column running this weekend, shameless plug, that asks a number of questions about Colorado politics coming up over the next year as sort of a preview. But one of those questions is, is the Colorado Republican Party poised for a comeback or is it is now just permanently a basket case? 2022 ought to be a banner year for Colorado Republicans as an off year for Joe Biden. There's a Senate seat, there's a governor's race, there's a bunch of other stuff. But at this point in time, until the Republicans can get their act together and demonstrate that, you'd have to put your money on basket case. 
Well, Greg, as we look at the opportunities next up for the Colorado GOP, it's facing pretty substantial uh, uh, incumbents in Governor Polis and, Michael, and Senator Michael Bennett. But right now, we heard today that Ken Buck is not interested in running against uh, Michael Bennett, and uh, we haven't heard any other big names. Is there time for the Colorado GOP to find themselves, rally around some candidates that have a chance against some fairly decent incumbents? Well, you know what, I, I think the fact that you're seeing, uh, you know, in Ohio and in Colorado, you know, um, representatives and Congress deciding not to go for statewide office just tells you that they realize the gig is up. That unless they stay in safe districts, they're out, okay? Um, you know, you have um, a sitting senator in Ohio that's not running and Jeffords just announced, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay right here in this red district. So. They know they're hanging on by their by their fingernails, and I don't know if they can recruit the kind of candidates that would have a broad appeal, particularly the um, independents. But that's really the challenge for them if they want to win statewide office. Is you know they got to be careful about the the, the, the kind of candidates that come forward. Uh, QAnon adherents, uh, that's just not going to work on a statewide level, and I think that's what you're beginning to see. When you have a person like Kim Buck step away from the challenge of, you know, going against uh, Bennett in a statewide race. So, you know, the thing that's most interesting about the, the changing of the uh, party affiliations is that it's happened so early, right? Normally, it happens much closer to an election, a primary or whatever. And, and I do think, as Eric said, it's a little bit of um, it's a little bit of a wake up call. I think it's something to pay attention to. And, you know, um, there's definitely some dissatisfaction, not just with the Republican Party and what happened on January 6th, but with uh, party politics in general. It's, um, we're, we're, it's, it's just a mess. And I think this, this, this movement that we're seeing right now in the early part of this year is an indication of that level of dissatisfaction. Pat, do you think that there's an opportunity here for the Kevin Priolas of Colorado to say this is a, the canary in the coal mine, we've got to do something to actually make some hay with it? Well, someone in the Colorado Republican Party has to do something if it is going to survive. I think right now, first of all, Lauren Boebert should be sending a thank you letter to Representative Taylor Green for making her look a little less crazy, uh, which is saying a lot to make her look less crazy. I think the best chance for the Republican Party in Colorado is to do a switch, trade all of Weld County to Wyoming, since Weld County wants to go there anyway, bring Liz Cheney down, who already has more charisma than most Colorado Republicans. I can see a lot of people being thinking that's a pretty intriguing trade. Let's get to our next topic. New oil and gas rules are being implemented in Colorado in an effort to slow climate change. Millions of acres of wildlife will now require permission from Colorado Parks and Wildlife before any drilling or development occurs. Meanwhile, Denver's Office of Climate Action, Resiliency and Stability plans to require any homes being built must be mostly powered by renewable energy sources by 2027. Eric, we have talked a lot about the uh, oil and gas uh, industry at this around this table, both uh, physically and virtually. Uh, right now, it does not seem to be a particularly strong era for the oil and gas industry, but it's not like it's just suddenly going to go away. Um, is this a sign for more battles to come? Uh, and I guess what we would, in the past would have called the oil and gas wars. Yeah, probably the biggest falsehood that uh, Governor Polis ever spoke was after some of these uh, oil and gas initiatives went away a few years ago, 
when he said something to the effect of, well, that puts an end to the oil and gas wars in Colorado. I don't have the exact quote, but that was the gist of it. Of course, that is a falsehood. In terms of these specific regulations and the actions of the uh, ill-named Denver office, uh, no one argues with the intent. No one argues with the worthiness and importance of the pursuit. The question is just how far you take it. It's not only that the oil and gas industry is not leaving Colorado anytime soon, it's that our need for oil and gas power is not going away anytime soon. So no one argues with the intent, but you know, Democrats just have to be a little conscious and cautious about how far they want to take it. Uh, Biden stepped pretty close to that line by spiking the Keystone Pipeline in one of his first official moves, and Colorado Democrats have similar decisions ahead. Greg, you made a great point in your previous comment about the economy and the pressure on officials to do something about the economy. It sounds like eliminating or doing more to harm a major player in Colorado's economy, that being the oil and gas industry, uh, there'd be some pressure to ease up on that industry as well. But I I don't know if this reflects that. What do you think? Well, I I, I think that the acreage that, you know, has to be permissioned for development is is a way to sort of create some wiggle room here with those regulations, right? Uh, I, I think it's really telling that the Conservation Commission and coming up with these new regulations, they had talked to all the stakeholders, including the oil and gas industry. And the fact that you don't really hear them screaming and hollering of, about the regs indicates that they got, you know, um, a considerable bit of what they wanted here. Uh, somebody had said everybody that's been involved in this process is, um, a little singed by it, but the fact that you don't hear a lot of screaming and a sort of wait and see, I think that when you look at the permissible parts of the development acreage, I think you're going to see that the oil and gas industry is probably going to get a little bit more what they want than you think. Patty, when you hear things from the Denver Office of Climate Action, Resiliency and Stability, it's a heck of a name, uh, wanting to make uh, renewable energy sources the main power for homes by 2027, energy-wise, that's next week. Is that realistic? Is that something that Denver officials should be looking at? Well, you can, they're also looking for net zero with Denver businesses and um, buildings. And I can tell you, people are screaming. Greg was talking about screaming. You can hear businesses across Denver, which are already hit by the pandemic, screaming about that. I can't even imagine what I'd have to do to – I think I'm still using coal in my house to heat it. Uh, but, but also, when you're talking about the screaming, nationally, we are switching from you, – you're getting whiplash. We're switching from Colorado's David Bernhard, head of the interior, to Deb Holland, who's coming up for confirmation. She's a really interesting person to take the lead in interior, and I hope we don't hear too much screaming from the Republicans over her nomination. David, is this a sign of larger problems in how Colorado is dealing with the oil and gas industry? Uh, huge problems for people losing their, their livelihoods. You know, there's an old story that the uh, French queen, Marie Antoinette, uh, when she was told that the peasants didn't have enough money for bread, uh, said, let them eat cake, which actually she never said. But there's a true story that global warming czar John Kerry is a billionaire, thanks to his advantageous, to a, advantageous marriage to a widow who inherited her late husband's infor- fortune. And so the czar was asked, what will happen to all the people who are losing their jobs because the Biden administration is strangling fossil fuels? And I hope Greg's right, but uh, it seems the problem's going to be aggravated in Colorado by even even further restrictions on on state lands. 
And the czar Kerry replied that they can get jobs assembling solar panels, or as the Colorado governor's office says, just transition. If the czar knew a little bit more about the lives of the little people who have to work for a living, he might know that the large majority of solar panels are made in China because they have a huge cost advantage over the United States. One, as in all communist countries, the workers have no rights, so wages are low. And two, Chinese manufacturing uses low-cost, abundant energy from coal and oil. Let's get a quick take on this last topic. Colorado-based company Dominion Voting Systems recently filed a 107-page lawsuit against former President Donald Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. The company said Giuliani uh, defended and promoted demonstrably false accusations of voter fraud and is asking for $1.3 billion. Greg, your quick take on this. uh, Is Dominion likely to see results? Uh, they may win, but they may not actually get the money. I mean, uh, Giuliani is owed a whole bunch of money from Donald Trump, and, and he's not going to get it. So it'll be sort of like getting blood out of Turner. But I, I think as a business, they have to defend their reputation, and they should have sued Giuliani. He's been hammering on their business, on their integrity, for you know since the election. I don't think they had any choice. Whether they actually get the money, I don't, I don't think they will, but, but I do think they, they will win if it goes to court. Uh, Patty, the right move for Dominion? Oh, a smart move by Dominion, which is a Denver company. It is. It works in 28 states already. There have been no proven cases of fraud with Dominion. They need to fight back. They've already sued Sidney Powell. They'll probably sue plenty of other people. But what they will, they might not win in court because it may never get there. But they will. They will win in the court of public opinion. David, uh, one of our, uh, actually our esteemed lawyer today, what do you think about the suit and Dominion's chances? Uh, the Denver Post has a good art- op-ed today by Harvard professor Noah Feldman showing that why Dominion has a, uh, a, a challenging case just because the, the rules on libel are, are so strict. Uh, but I, I lived in Brooklyn in the 1980s back when Rudy Giuliani was the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And back then it was the same as he is now. He's an unscrupulous sleaze who ruins people's lives back then with prosecutions that eventually fell apart once the Second Circuit looked at and saw the, the facts were bogus and uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office engaged in legal misconduct. So Giuliani's pattern of trying to ruin people's lives so he can get on TV is a very long-standing one. Eric, hell hath no fury like a voting systems company slandered? Well, I hope Dominion prevails in court. I hope they collect. And then I hope they use that largesse to move into new Denver offices uh, and the penthouse of the Four Seasons Hotel. Here, here. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, there, there have been so many disgraces lately. I couldn't get to this one. Steve Bannon's pardon. You know, the most cynical, fraudulent activity, you know, the whole we build the wall, let's get the money donated. But not only has he been pardoned, but he is now leaving a Colorado man, Timothy Shea, who was also charged with him in the hot seat. Because if Bannon was pardoned for a crime, what happens to the guys going on trial in May? Fair question. David. The 800 people who invaded the U.S. Capitol included people of different races. But even if all 800 had been white, they'd be a a quite minuscule fraction of the 234 million white people in the United States. Yet at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, the associate vice chancellor for equity and diversity and inclusion went on a video rant against white people. And according to her, white America, I need you to fix your freaking families. This is your fault. That's like blaming all Muslims for 9-11. 
Vice Chancellor Stephanie Rose Spaulding could do a better job of fostering an inclusive campus atmosphere. Eric, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Well, since I suspect you're not going to give me 10 minutes, Dominic, to go through all the disgraces that we could this week, uh, let me just focus on the proposed Biden administration and congressional stimulus package of just shy of $2 trillion and the notion that these $2,000 stimulus payments are going to go to everyone regardless of income, regardless of need, regardless of how they have been hurt by COVID. There are wealthy people in this country, well-off people in this country, who do not need these stimulus checks, should not receive them, and this one-size-fits-all is not becoming. Greg, what's your disgrace of the week? Uh, I'm going to give it to the porch pirates who are following Amazon vans and UPS trucks around and stealing packages off of people's porches. I hope that some creative kid, you know, comes up with a, a home alone jury rigged contraption that drops a bucket of poop on them when they reach down for the package. It's outrageous. By far one of our most creative uh, disgraces of the week. Well done there, Greg. Let's get to say something nice. Patty? Tromping on Eric's turf, but... Coors Field will soon see the Rockies again, but unfortunately, Don Boodle Jr., who was so critical to bringing Major League Baseball here, passed away. So sorry for him, but thank you for what he did. Also, I want to say a quick shout out to Bree Davies, who's a contributor both here and at Westward, who's the new host of City uh, CityCast, a podcast coming here in March. Here, here, David. Senators Bennett and Hickenlooper for fighting to keep the Federal Bureau of Land Management in Grand Junction. Regulators should live among the people they regulate. And the vast, so the vast majority of Bureau of Land Management lands are in the Rocky Mountain West, so that's where the agency should be, too. Eric, time to say something nice. You're here to David's point, but going much larger here. Uh, the Soviet d- dissident Alexei Navalny who is, uh, after being poisoned, uh, after other attacks or attempts on his life, is emerging as the rallying cry of a movement that is probably more of a threat to Vladimir Putin than any other dissident movement so far. So hooray to some of what is going on in Russia. Greg, we go to you next. Yeah, I'm going to give it to... um, um, Rico Givens Padilla, a senior at North High School who managed to persevere during this pandemic, you know, studying remotely from home and just found out this week that he got into Harvard University. That is awesome. That is awesome. And I want to get in and say something nice. About a week and a half or so ago, I was remiss to not mention an important congratulations to my family, my Aunt Lee and Uncle Richard Rotola, celebrating 62 years together. I'm not sure uh, which one of them uh, will first apply and qualify for sainthood, but I'm sure both of them are, uh, are going to be uh, right in line. So, Aunt Lee and Uncle Richard, congratulations. Uh, and indeed, I also want to thank all of you, uh, our uh, members and our viewers out there of Colorado Inside Out and PBS 12. As we've been uh, collecting all of our data from 2020, we realized that we were very lucky as a nonprofit organization to get a whole lot of support from all of you. There are a lot of different organizations that can't say that, but we are able to say we're in good shape because of all of you. So thank you for so much of uh, your support over these years and especially in a difficult year like last year. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Tizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. We'll